Welcome to the Balance of Power Roundtable broadcast on WKXL, 1450 AM, 101.9 FM in Manchester, and of course, 103.9 in Concord. And podcast, wherever you find your podcasts, we're in the Capital Close-Up podcast feed, which is just chock full of absolutely fascinating conversations with lively, animated, and interesting people, like my panelists here, Alicia Preston, and former two-term Congressman Paul Hodes. Alicia, Paul, welcome back. How was your Thanksgiving? How, Alicia, how was your Thanksgiving? My Thanksgiving was wonderful. It was very small, my immediate family, um, but I never get to host and cook a feast for Thanksgiving. So I enjoyed it. My family was stuck at a dinner table with me talking and knew they weren't allowed to leave or use their phones. So it was kind of heaven for me. Alicia, what is the most overrated Thanksgiving dish? Go. Oh, green bean casserole. Yeah, that's that's oh. that's pretty that's pretty bad. Paul, how was your Thanksgiving and, and what's what's your most overrated dish? Thanksgiving was great. I was with friends who set a beautiful table and cooked, and I didn't have to lift a finger except to drink a really good scotch. Uh, which uh, was news to me because I've cooked every Thanksgiving. But uh, they cooked uh, turkey in a bag, which, although it doesn't brown as well, is very moist. So I highly recommend turkey in a bag, turkey in a bag. There's a song in that. And um, then the side dishes were cooked from the latest New York Times sides extravaganza insert in last week's uh, New York Times, not this week's, and it contained the dreaded green bean mushroom onion casserole, which is perhaps the world's most overrated Thanksgiving dish. My grandmother made it with canned turkeys, fried onions, and Campbell's cream of mushroom soup, and frozen uh, defrosted string beans. She did a very good job on it, and it was a childhood favorite. This variant contained none of those ingredients. It contained dreaded organic French cut haricot vert string beans. It contained freshly fried onions and uh, shiitake mushrooms with some kind of real creme sauce. And it just wasn't nearly as good. It It was organic, it was fancy, but it missed that that 1950s good housekeeping seal of approval. I missed the chemicals. I missed the canned flavor. I missed it all. But I made up for it by cooking uh, yesterday uh, for friends. And so we had a friend's Thanksgiving after all, and uh, we cooked all, all kinds of things. Well, you bring up an interesting point as much as we're all into health and local and organic and all that stuff. And by the way, there's a fascinating episode we did with a Harvard professor who wrote that the whole organic movement is uh, a con, basically. It's it's uh, just making you pay too much for your food. Um, I, I have to say that all those preservatives and ingredients and the things that make Twinkies taste so good, like partially de-weaponized plutonium, they're just they they just they're good for food. They 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 taste good. I know they're terrible for you. They're good for food. My secret answer: the most overrated Thanksgiving dish is you heard it here first, folks. Turkey. Turkey is just it's just not good. It's 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 sort of the it's it's down it's down slope of the of the 
pantheon of poultry. It's uh, it's not a good bird. Most look, people, mo- wait a second, wait a second. Most people just don't know how to cook turkey. Let, let's face it. Have you seen the YouTube videos of people dunking frozen turkeys into giant vats of boiling oil and Darwinism frozen? Dope. Darwinism. Dope. By the way, deep fried turkey is delicious. Just don't sure. freeze it. I'll tell you who knew how to actually cook native <laughs> birds was Native American people. And then the Europeans showed up and, uh, you know, ruined everything. But look, I digress because we have to get from a fun topic to a fraught topic. A totally, uh, I don't know, even know what to call this anymore. The ongoing saga of the January 6th committee. There has actually been, while you weren't paying attention and actually enjoying your life, there has been a lot going on with this, including, Alicia, you wanted to cover a gag order surrounding Steve Bannon. Why don't you tell our listeners what's up with that and what's your take on it? So apparently the committee is appealing to a judge to limit what Bannon and his defense team can release publicly or speak about publicly as this process takes through, through discovery and other things, because they believe that, uh, you know, there's witness statements and things of that nature. And if it goes public, that the social media justice warriors who defend Bannon, by the way, there's social media justice warriors on both sides of the aisle here. These are the ones that support Bannon would attack and go after witnesses and it would thereby uh, be the same as witness tampering. So uh, my opinion on it is I I don't like, I just do not like government telling people what private citizens, what they can and cannot say, regardless of it, Steve Bannon or whomever it is. I don't like it, but I think it's a very interesting argument for 2021 when online bullydom is so, you know, rampant through everyone and it makes me wonder if it's a legitimate claim but i'm not sure if it is legally maybe that's something paul can weigh in on yeah paul you're obviously a veteran prosecutor and member of congress so i have two legal questions for you first of all is social media justice warriors an awesome name for a rock band and second of all (laughs) what do you make of the legality and the and this point that you might be doing something amounting to witness tampering uh, first of all, Social Media Justice War Warriors is a great rock and roll name, and I'm going to claim it. My current geezer band is called Calamity Jane. That's kind of out of out of touch. I, I was thinking maybe the dystopians would be good or uh, something like that. But Social Media Justice Warriors is much longer, harder to swallow, and probably uh, a much better 21st century geezer rock band name. Having said that, uh, a court of law... Uh, and what goes on in a court of law, and how to protect the proceedings and make sure they are fair and impartial, um, is a different kind of venue than the general court of public opinion. And in fact, there are all kinds of rules that apply in a court of law to what happens and how the justice system protects what happens inside a court of law that we're all familiar with. People aren't allowed, for example, to influence jurors. Jurors Uh, in cases who are hearing facts aren't allowed to go look at the news and make up their mind on evidence from outside uh, the courtroom. Uh, Witnesses are to be protected from tampering or being uh, influenced. Uh, There are all kinds of rules that protect confidential information when confidential information is released in highly sensitive cases, uh, often involving government information. So, in 
the Bannon case, he's charged with contempt. He vowed to go on the offense and make this case, quote, hell, unquote. Um, and his interest is really in creating a media circus more than it is in defending himself because he would he that's his gleeful approach to to any situation is if I make it a media circus, I win no matter what. Uh, and it takes uh, everybody's eye off the ball of what's going on uh, in the court. So I think it was a prudent move on the part of the prosecution to simply say, look, um, he's we're trying to make sure that the proceedings in here are fair and impartial. Um, uh uh, Bannon wanted to unseal grand jury testimony, which is a pretty unusual in an ongoing case. They wanted to unseal other evidence. Um, material has been provided to the Bannon lawyers marked secret and confidential uh, with the understanding from the court that it would not be disseminated. So Bannon is trying to create a media circus. The government is trying to keep uh, keep things contained. I think that they have a pretty strong case, um, given Bannon's statements about what he intends, i.e. turning this trial on his misdemeanor charges into a media circus. Um, and given the documents that have been shared, I, I, think, I think the prosecution comes out pretty well uh, with, with this move. You can call it a gag order, but it's really trying to protect the integrity of, of, of the trial. Well, you know, this really does come right out of the Steve Bannon playbook. It's Steve Bannon 101. And we've seen this going back to the kinds of uh, advice and political direction that he was giving to Donald Trump as early as 2015. He was to his, I guess, credit, should we call it credit, to, to uh, sort of give a, a golf clap to his political acumen. He was one of the first to realize that you don't need to win a, in a court of public opinion broadly across the spectrum of American public opinion, what you really need to do is appeal over and over again to a very intense slice that is already in your corner and play to them relentlessly because they'll drive everything for you. They're the ones who will show up. They'll show up to vote. They'll give money. They'll, they'll be political activists. They'll get media attention. And it'll turn into a feedback loop that helps you politically. That seems to be what he has invoked previously in, in terms of his client, Donald Trump, and what he's now invoking here. It's not so much a legal strategy as it is a political strategy. And we've kind of seen this work in the case of the first Trump impeachment, in, even in the case of the second Trump impeachment, where there was increasingly mountains and piles of evidence of culpability and guilt on the part of Donald Trump. But they very cleverly didn't try so much to fight a legal battle as a political battle. And ultimately, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. We've all had to eat it metaphorically because they have both, Steve Bannon and Donald Trump, come out pretty well from both of those proceedings. And it does seem like, despite the Justice Department's filing, which just occurred uh, earlier this week, where they're saying, look, the Steve Bannon defense team is lodging frivolous legal complaints. They're trying to turn this into a circus. They're, they're basically blowing up the entire legal process. I, I think that this looks like advantage Bannon. He's playing a well-defined and successful playbook. I don't know if you guys see it any different, but that's my take. I don't think you're wrong. I guess my concern through all of this is, you know, preserving um, this portion of what is democracy. Our, you know, it's, it's our judicial system through our Congress and all that. It's a little more complicated. But what I mean by that is, 
you know, I find Ben an unlikable character. And I don't think most people find him a likable character. They like the guy he likes. So therefore they like him. Bannon himself is not a likable character, but because he's not a likable character doesn't mean I want our, you know, the important tenets of our judicial system to be thrown out the window because who cares if it happens to Bannon? Um, I'm kind of in the who cares if it happens to Bannon category, except that that just is a slippery slope for, you know, the rights of Congress or the judiciary to, step a step too far for any other citizen because it was easy to do for a guy that no one likes. That's my concern. If I made that make sense. No, that actually makes sense. That's the point of the legal system. And I think it connects back to the point that Paul was making. I am, as I've said on this show before, I'm a legal system purist. I believe in the entire third of our constitution that is turned over to the judicial branch and the importance in our system of government, sort of the majesty, if I can be all highfalutin about this, about the fact that we have the judicial system we do that protects people, that protects even people who are kind of not very sympathetic, that we believe in the rights of the accused and the reason, as Paul was alluding to, that we constrain the information that juries get. And we try and make sure that they're not overly influenced by sensationalistic media portrayals of evidence is that we want a fair and impartial weighing of evidence. And so I kind of, I I agree with both sides of the argument you're making, Alicia, which is we actually have to be very, very careful about attempts like Bannon's to pull the media into this and turn it into a media circus because it really does undermine the system of justice, which is really one of the crown jewels of our constitution. But I want to go to a different angle on this, a point that you were just alluding to, which is the reason it seems, as you were arguing, that Republicans seem as a knee-jerk matter to want to protect Steve Bannon is they kind of like the guy he works for, which is another way of saying we're all in our partisan corners. And this all kind of came up once again last week in the comments of Congresswoman Lauren Boebert, who is sort of notorious in, in, in the media for being a little out there, um, a, a, a little nutty. And what happened was that video emerged showing Boebert speaking to supporters and saying, that she was in an elevator with outspoken Democratic Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, who happens to be Muslim, when a Capitol Police officer ran for the door. And Boebert on video said, what's happening? I looked to my left and there she is, Ilhan Omar. And I said, well, she doesn't have a backpack. We should be fine. Apparently referring to her Muslim colleague in Congress as potentially a suspected terrorist. Paul, Do you see this as another instance of this is clearly behavior that is racist, beyond the pale, should not be tolerated, and yet we've gotten to such a point in our politics that Republicans are knee-jerk defending her and they're going to continue to, despite how disgusting and, and whatever else her comments were? Yes, Republicans are going to continue to stand with Lauren Boebert. Uh, She's the third district Colorado congresswoman whose website proudly proclaims that she's going to Congress to stand up for the Constitution against the left wing lunatics. And apparently left wing lunatics are anybody who isn't a right wing lunatic. And 
name calling aside, this is not the first nor the last time we are going to see outrageous, unacceptable behavior from Congresswoman Boebert, who was elected by her constituents with the full knowledge that she is a basket case. She is a crazy, 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 crazy. Uh, and I and I and I and I say that in 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 good faith. I mean, I'm not just name calling. She really is on the fringe of of even what is considered, I think, acceptable in Republican circles these days. Uh, her conduct is 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 over the line. And yes, we have come to see or come to accept that this kind of crazy talk and personal attacks. Um, are, are, are tolerated. Now, I don't think that in the moment that it happened, um, and here I'm going to be very generous to Laura, Congresswoman Bobert, I do not believe the Congresswoman necessarily intended, had the purpose to say something hateful and inflammatory. It is so baked into her DNA, she doesn't know what is or is not acceptable, inflammatory, or crazy. She really doesn't know. She, she, is, she is a sufficiently a twisted and warped a personality to simply have it come out. And, 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 of, and she apologized later. And perhaps upon reflection, she realized that, that maybe that was over the line. It's just the latest in a string of this kind of behavior. Um, the Republicans won't do anything about it. In fact, they probably kind of like it because it makes them look reasonable. I mean, if you've got a crazy loony out there um, making these kinds of comments, the normal inflammatory over the line stuff that most of the Republicans in Congress say seems seems like plain vanilla. So, Alicia, two questions for you. One, your husband is a noted rock drummer. Is Left Wing Lunatics a great name for a rock band? And second of all, Look, oh, no yeah. one wants to be judged oh, yeah. by the craziest people in their political party. And Ilhan Omer has not exactly covered herself in glory in the past with some of her comments, not overtly racist, but nothing to write home about with pride either. But what should Republicans do about Lauren Boebert? First of all, as Paul tagged social media justice warriors for his band, I'm taking left wing lunatics for Chris's. I think that is a fantastic name on it ours uh look this is the cray cray of the party versus the cray cray of the party i mean right i mean yes bobert who i am unfamiliar <laughs> with before this i don't know anything about this woman somehow and doesn't she run does. a restaurant called the second amendment cafe where everyone's carrying I, yeah. I literally had not heard of this woman, to my knowledge, until this story came out. So I was like, <laughs> the you know, answer to my trivia slate. question is yes, by the way. The answer <laughs> is yes. Okay. She is. She is that crazy. <laughs> Go on. OK, so but, you know, yes, people elected her. People also elected Omar, who is a vocal anti-Semite who hates America, who gave her refuge as a child and allowed her to elevate as a congresswoman. I mean, neither one of these characters are exactly sympathetic figures, going back to our original point earlier in the show. That being said, look, I think people get offended too easily. Was it an offensive comment? Absolutely. Is it the kind of thing that people should, you know, go too crazy about? No, because I think it was a juvenile statement. And that bothers me. It bothers me greatly because can we grow up? You're our United States Congress people. I don't think she meant anything too bad from it other than being 
really immature and stupid. And but Omar said some really immature, stupid things herself. So I think what we got to do is rather than focus on the words, focus on growing up a little bit, guys. Wait a yeah, second. Wait a, a second. Hold on. Hold, hold on. We, I know we're we're close to time, but let me just say you can't plead plead a, equivalence in order to defend what crazy Bobert just said. I'm not defending either one of them. I think they're All both right. insane. We are going to take this debate off the air as the tagline for Lauren Boebert's Second Amendment restaurant says, come on in and shoot your mouth off. We're going to do that in this break, and then we'll be right back. That's not real. We'll be right back in just a moment. We've got to talk about the fact that there is another variant out there of COVID-19. It is called Omicron. We have gone through a lot of discussion on the show before about the Greek naming system, Alicia Preston Xanthopoulos disagrees with that whole approach, but look, we're stuck with it. So Omicron has emerged and it's kind of cast a dark cloud over just about everything. The stock market tumbled last Friday and now politicians are scrambling and we're all, I think, kind of scrambling to try to update our expectations about what this COVID winter is going to look like. Alicia, the Biden administration's initial action on this was to stop flights from certain African nations. And they're clearly in a closely monitor, wait and see type mode. Are they doing enough? What else should they be doing? How should we all kind of be treating this news of the emergence of a new variant? I can eloquently say, ugh. Ugh. My first reaction, ugh. Well, before I answer that, if I can, on the Greek alphabet thing, it was a funny dinner when we were talking about this and i pointed out to my husband that in the greek alphabet the who who names these variants skipped the letter g because it's the name of the premier of china and don't want to upset them and he's like so now you're going to use our alphabet but you won't use the whole thing some of our alphabets offending you it's kind of just a funny irony and we so people are afraid of offending the chinese but not the greeks yeah that is an interesting commentary on where we are in the world it's messed up right (laughs) anyway uh, i think this stinks i think it's too bad that we we just cannot get out of this circle and i'm not sure it's anyone's fault but the development of science and virus but uh, look i i support biden banning nations that um, have high numbers or changing variants that we are unfamiliar with i don't have a problem with it some on the left have a problem with it because it's africa they're calling it racist uh i think that's ridiculous it happens to be in africa by the way south africa is where it started which is not predominantly a black nation the other ones are but i mean you got to point out the hypocrisy in 2020 february 2020 trump did a very very similar thing for the exact same reason and it was joe biden himself that called it xenophobic to do it. And I just, it wasn't xenophobic when Trump did it. They happen to come from black areas and they happen to be foreign countries. You protect your own people. That is the job of our president. A lot of people online are saying, no, Trump put that ban in because they were Muslim. That ban was put in in 2018. We cannot conflate the two, two very different things. So a president's job is to protect its people wherever danger may be coming from. Put up a ban. I don't care. Put a bubble around the United States for all I care. Paul, I hate to turn to the politics of something as deadly serious as this, but we are mostly a politics show. And I think we have to go right there because the Biden administration already found itself in a position where despite the economy doing very well by almost all measurable statistics, the American public is down 
on the Biden administration. They are down on the economy. They are down on their confidence in the future. And now we have this. What, if anything, should they be doing from a pure politics standpoint to get themselves out of what seems like another body blow to Democratic prospects? Well, you know, presidents are often faced with uh, events beyond their control, and they often have consequences which are uh, short term, and sometimes they have consequences that are long lasting. And there's almost there's virtually nothing in situations like that that presidents can can do. And that is the situation with COVID that the Biden administration finds itself in. Now, uh, there's a, there's more we don't know about the Omicron Coronas variant than we do know. It is another variant. It began in South Africa. The first two cases have now been reported in Canada. So it is uh, no doubt spread going to spread. Um, so we are looking at uh, continued vigilance. Um, President Biden, I think, wisely said, look, it's a cause for concern, not for panic. We're going to get new variants in the United States. That's why it's going to be important to get vaccinated and stay masked. Um, as, as, as challenging as that is, as tiresome and awful as it is, that's really about the only thing we've got to work with. The fact that there are travel bans um, is probably prudent till we figure out uh, what's going on with it, wherever, wherever the, the tra- you know, wherever this originated. Um, there's, I don't think anybody's playing racial politics about this. The poorer nations, however, are complaining that the uh, the the, um, the the industrialized world, uh, the developed world, has not done enough to help with vaccinating the poorer countries. Um, we are facing a global pandemic. Uh, one thing that, that the US administration could do is beef up even further its efforts to rally the world around providing vaccines globally and hopefully and be able to message that we are doing everything we can around the world, not just stopping flights, but also uh, beefing up vaccinations uh, around the world. At the same time, the president has said, we have a new threat. We're going to face it. We're not going into lockdown. Uh, the answer still is vaccinations and masks. I don't know if anything is going to prevent the continuing crisis among the unvaccinated in this country who apparently believe in the live free and die. Um, because uh, except maybe maybe that sufficient numbers of dead unvaccinated people will convince people who uh, are, are denying the efficacy of vaccines to finally get a little jab and get vaccinated. The misinformation campaign is the tragedy of this entire of this entire um, pandemic. That is the real that's the real tragedy in terms of political consequences. I think the government is going to uh, get tagged with the continuation of COVID, no matter what the government does or doesn't do. Um, but from a political standpoint, I don't think we're going to see uh, lockdowns happening in this country. Uh, I think you're going to see a renewed push for vaccines and masks. And that's probably about all a sensible administration can do at this point. Well, I'd like to insert a little bit of good news into all of this because, you know, so much of the news has been so bad in recent months. And I, I, 
I don't think I'm being Pollyanna about this. I really do think that there are some real silver linings here. First of all, we've had scientists confirm that because we have the, they call it a platform, we have, we have the basic science of the mRNA vaccines that went into the Pfizer and Moderna shots, which have proved to be so effective at protecting people from hospitalization and death with the existing variants of COVID that are out there. They estimate that we could come up with a new vaccine if necessary, if needed, to specifically target Omicron in about three months, and it would sail through regulatory approval because the basic platform of the vaccine is already established, already well studied. That is tremendous news. It means that we can essentially micro-target this new variant incredibly fast if we need to, and we don't know even that we need to. The second piece of good news is that we are much further along the vaccination train than we were when Delta emerged, not only in the numbers of vaccinated adults, but also now in vaccinated children age five to 12. I think that's a big relief, especially for those of us who are parents, but it also increases the total vaccination rate across the population, which protects all of us. It means fewer safe harbors for this uh, variant to reside in. And we also know a lot more about how to deal with the new variant. We were kind of blindsided by Delta this summer, but I think we're kind of prepared for that. We also now know scientifically that if you've previously had COVID, as millions and millions of Americans have, that gives you some protection, but it's not as good as the combination of protection of having some natural immunity based on having had COVID and also having the vaccine. And we're having increasing numbers of Americans who have that kind of double experience. And so the vaccination continues to be the best course forward. As a matter of fact, as this episode airs, I am due for my booster shot tonight. In, in just a few hours, as you're listening to this on the radio, or maybe you're listening to it in podcast, and I, I just got it done, and I'm keeping that appointment. There's no reason not to continue on the vaccination train. So I think we have some tools. I think it's not as dire a situation as I think Delta emerging this summer seemed to be. We're much further along in all this. We know how to handle these things. And we'll just wait and see how bad this is. It's still possible that this variant won't be particularly bad. So that's my upside silver lining take on all of this. Alicia, what do you a think? Couple, you going to pop couple, my balloon? No, not at all. A couple of things I just wanted to run off of that you said. Number one, <clears throat> in a, for the purpose of advocating, I had my booster. And despite the fact that my second shot, I had a pretty severe reaction to, I had almost no reaction to the booster at all. So I just want people to know, and I, like I said, had a pretty severe reaction to the second one. The booster, nothing. Little sore arm pain. It's easy. It's quick. You can get it anywhere and, you know, do it for yourself and others. The other thing is you just made me think of when you brought up people who had been infected before and can get reinfected again. I know someone who, as we speak, is stuck at home in quarantine because this person has COVID. This individual had COVID pretty bad quite early on, has gotten it again, did not get vaccinated. Now, because the individual believes some misinformation that you are completely protected once you've had it, it just isn't true. But here's what, since the argument of do what's well for your family and your fellow man isn't working for too many people, let me try this argument. This person has the kind of job that you don't get paid unless you go to can't go to work. This person has school-aged children who have to stay at the other parent's house while this person's in quarantine. This person can't make money, can't go shopping. It's Christmas time, can't go Christmas shopping. So 
if, if the other stuff doesn't work, the practicality needs to, that you're going to mess up your own routine and life and those of your loved ones, because it's pretty inconvenient when you're stuck in your house for 14 days and you're not making money. You know, you just reminded me of another piece of good news about this, because when we saw this last time with Delta, the immediate reaction was we were in a plateau of people getting vaccinated. And as soon as the Delta news began to emerge, all of a sudden there was a spike in people getting vaccinated. We went from about half a million administered shots per week to a million. We literally doubled on the news that, hey, there's a new variant out there. Maybe it's time to get serious about this. So hopefully that'll happen as well. And again, to Alicia's point, every additional vaccinated person is protection for all of the rest of us. It's incredibly good news. I just, I like this good news version of this so much. I think we should leave it there. I don't want to hear any more bad news. I'm done with bad news. Speaking of which, actually, let's talk about a fun story. I, I'm, I'm going to stay on this fun train for the rest of the year. No more bad news on the Balance of Power Roundtable. Alicia Preston, you sent me an email earlier in which you said, quote, and I'm outing you here. I'm, I'm going to do it. You said, the hottest dude in America is not running for governor of Texas. Please give me your full take on A, the political implications of this, and more important, B, is Matthew McConaughey truly the hottest dude in America? Well, let me answer your final question, which is, oh my gosh, yes, he absolutely is. Next to my husband, if he's listening. Um, but you say you don't want bad news. This is terrible news. This is tragic news for every warm-blooded woman in America who wanted to see him splashed all over our TV screens repeatedly on every channel and show for the next year. So, I mean, nothing against Greg Abbott, current governor of Texas, but Matthew McConaughey not running for Texas governor just takes him a little bit out of my life. And that makes me sad. I also was thinking of dusting off my, you know, former political consulting hat and I don't like to fly, but I would fly to Texas and begging him to let me pay him to politically consult for him. I lose that opportunity. Um, that's that's upsetting. And, and I think it's sad news. That being said, I don't think it has any influence at all on the political landscape. <laughs> Paul, I'm you just, were, you were noted for running for your beefcake status in America. So mm, what's your take on this? I'm just going to drive around here and my Lincoln Navigator and pull out at every lake and pond there is and stop and let the camera melt around my beautiful body. And the people of Texas will understand that they want my kind of leadership, my kind of leadership that nestles back into that smooth leather seat and turns on the radio and just makes everybody feel good. I, I can't imagine why Matthew McConaughey would not want to run for governor of Texas. I, I, I mean, I would go to work for him and I don't even, what is, 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 is he a Republican? Is he a Democrat? Who what cares? Have you looked at him? Right, right. I, well, yeah, I have, but I don't have the quite the same. I confess I do not have the same reaction that you do, Alicia. Now that's, you know, it, it may be a failing of mine uh, to, to my lack of appreciation for his, for his male pulchritude, but, but uh, his political views are frankly unknown. Uh, I think he probably wears a good cowboy boot. So I think frankly, he probably qualifies for governor, governor of Texas. Listen, he, he can't do a worse job than Greg Abbott. I mean, nobody could. Well, I suppose LePage would, 
LePage and is is kind of like Abbott and Trump is kind of like Abbott, but Matthew McConaughey, um, I, I think, Alicia, I think you get on a plane, you fly to wherever Matthew McConaughey is, you fall to your knees and you say, Matthew, please, Matthew, I need you to run. I think that is what America is waiting for. But, I am confident that, but, that if a woman ran up to Matthew McConaughey, fell to her knees and started pleading with him for something, he would run, just not in the same <laughs> sense that we mean on this show. I'm pretty sure there, there's precedent for that occurring. Not by me, for those who are curious. But, oh, sure. Not by, um, can, I, can, yeah. I, can I tell you my, my, uh, celebrity, my celebrity hotness crush story? So in 2008, I attended the Democratic National Convention. It was the one in Denver. Obama was nominated. And let me tell you, for anyone who's never gone to a, a convention and like been on the circuit, and I was, I was, you know, helping out the folks who were running the whole New Hampshire delegation. And it's a slog. I mean, you are you are running. I'm not trying to pretend that like I was suffering, but I was exhausted. I was sleeping an average of about two hours a night. Got to the fourth night, and. Every night there are parties hosted by various groups, companies, et cetera. And there was the biggest party of the whole convention was hosted by Google slash Vanity Fair. And no one was getting into this. And for some reason, I got a ticket to get into this. Why on Ooh. earth was I invited to the Google Vanity Fair party? I don't know. So anyway, I find myself inside here. I am barely awake. I am... I don't know what's happening. It's dark and light and loud and quiet. And like everything is happening to my senses all at once. And all of a sudden there's dancing going around and like music happening. And all of a sudden this woman grabs my hand and starts dancing with me. And, and then we like end up getting sent down like a soul train line dancing together. And I reflexively dance. This is like one of those like spinal cord things. Your brain is not in charge. So like your nervous system just kicks in. I start reflexively dancing. So I don't know what that looked like. Anyway, I get to the end of the soul train line and I look up to see who is this person who has just grabbed me to start dancing with me. It was noted actress Ashley Judd. And Whoa. for some reason, oh. I was her pick of dance partner. Because you're hot. Well, okay. You know, so here's, here's, here's what kind of a, a smooth operator I I stepped off that dance floor and immediately called my wife to say, guess who just grabbed my hand to dance with me? Oh, so anyway, man. you are a loser. You're a loser. L-O-S-A-H. You loser. <laughs> well, I mean, no you know, selfie, I, I, no selfie. No, no selfie? No, let's go. No, let's go have a drink. Earlier, this is no. 2008, man. We were on like flip phone selfies. It oh, was, right. you know, and it was dark. And light and loud and quiet and all those things. And so, like, no, not a chance. But I look, if she had decided to challenge Mitch McConnell in 2014, as she was rumored to do, I would have donated. I mean, who knows? Maybe, um, maybe she would have invited me on the campaign trail. I don't know. We'll never know now. Now we'll, we'll never know, know what could have been. Well, you know, it is interesting. It is interesting. I'm back to talking about me and Matt McConaughey, in case you're curious. <laughs> Oh, I, I know that during that whole thing, you went off to a private Alicia land. Just, you know, you were, you were somewhere else. You were it's like in the movie inside out, you know, it's like, come fly with me. You were on a stage with magic Mike XSL. Um, it is interesting though, when the celebrity candidates 
ultimately decide not to do it because of course you have the ultimate hey, what if they actually follow through with it? And what do you get, Donald Trump? Like, it seems like Matthew McConaughey is a pretty chill guy. It seems like Ashley Judd is a pretty likable lady. Who knows? Maybe they're crazy. Like, maybe they're awful. Have we maybe dodged a bullet here? Maybe they're really smart because they start talking to people and delving into what it takes to run for office or be in office. And they're like, forget this. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for telling me what it's all about. I'll say no. (laughs) Yeah. So Ronald Reagan clearly is the answer to my next question. So we have to, we we have to remove him from the equation. Who is the most successful actor turned politician besides Reagan? Um, Al Franken. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Who's the guy that was a WWE wrestler who became governor of the Hulk? No, became governor of one. Oh, of the Jesse mid- Ventura. Jesse Ventura. Yeah. You know, you could call him an actor. Yeah. It's not like he was an athlete. He was in sports entertainment. Well, he was also in the running man. He was. He did some acting. Yeah, he did some acting. Jesse Ventura. Steve Largent, the uh, speaking of athletes, I mean, he he became governor of Oklahoma. He was a in my youth. For the Seattle Seahawks, he was Did a. Did you say youth? In my youth, I'm just considering <laughs> whether my kids are old youth? enough to see that movie. We're really, we're really going off the rails here. Why don't actors make good politicians? Remember when Fred Thompson was all the rage? He, I mean, he was a successful senator and a very successful actor, and I was convinced in a, at a certain point that he was the most likely nominee in 2008. Why is it that more actors are not successful politicians? Because there aren't enough. If you look at the industries and how many of them try for political office, actor, famous actor with lots and lots and lots of money already in the bank is a pretty small pool to pull from. And, you know, how many lawyers fail? Well, since we have a lot of them in there, I'm going to assume a lot of lawyers fail to run for office. But there aren't too many multimillionaire Hollywood actors and actresses trying to do this. So that's why there aren't a huge success. In numbers. Oh, I, I don't know. I think uh, I think actors and actresses are, are used to hard work. They work all crazy hours. They're used to staying on script. So that's a real a real good. That's a plus in the actor column for uh, being a politician, because if you're going to be successful, all your consultants and staff will tell you you've got to stay on message no matter what. Um, many uh, successful politicians in New Hampshire often carry a notebook around. And when asked a question, uh, they turn to the right page in their notebook and read whatever spiel is in the notebook uh, that qualifies as staying on message. So actors are pretty good at that. They've got to know their lines and repeat their lines endlessly. They've got to take direction. So, you know, I didn't do anything that Robeson didn't say yay or nay on. I would, I had no brain of my own. That also qualifies actors. And in fact, in my early career, I was an actor. Now I'm on balance of power. Well, this director is going to have to call cut because we are absolutely out of time. For Paul Hodes and Alicia Preston, I'm Matt Robeson. We'll see you next time.